people who suffer through sickness and illness and doctors who treat them have long known that treating symptoms is something of a fool's game. It's not always wrong to treat symptoms. If you have an itch, it's perfectly fine to scratch it. If you have pains, it's perfectly fine to take medicine to seem to, to somehow eliminate that pain. But sometimes those symptoms, as they reoccur, indicate that something more deep, more important is going on, that just treating the symptoms then becomes a foolishness. Sometimes headaches are more than just momentary pains. Sometimes skin problems have a deeper cause. Good doctors know when to treat symptoms and when to treat causes. The problem with treating causes is that they're difficult to find, and they can often be excruciatingly troublesome to actually diagnose. Treating symptoms is a cure. Preventing by dealing with the cause is always worth a pound of that. The Corinthians do indeed have a problem here, which on its surface seems easy enough to deal with. It's an itch that they feel should be scratched rather easily. They're eating food in temples that has been offered to idols, and their rationale is, listen, we know that those idols are just statues, and we can get this meat on the cheap, and this is part of our, our interaction in the social world, and, and, and by our theology, there's no problem with this. The questions that are posed to Paul might be very straightforward and very easy. Are we not okay to eat meat, even in idol temples? Is our theology right? Aren't we within our rights to eat this meat? How are we wrong? And to those answers, Paul would say, no, your theology, your theology is fine. Your theology is not wrong. But he would also answer that quite obviously you are wrong in a major and important cause. He refuses simply to treat the symptoms on the surface, which would all point to the fact that the Corinthians ought to go on eating meat offered in temples because there's nothing wrong with it. And he goes to an underlying cause. There's a problem that runs deeper than that. This chapter is quite a switch from previous chapters. In chapters 5 and 6 and 7, there were all doctrinal problems, these problems of their thinking, their theology, and how they, they thought through what Christ had done for them. In chapter 5, they, they seemingly didn't understand the necessary discipline that was supposed to be present within any congregation. They didn't understand the Lord's concern for the body in chapter 6. They didn't understand how the saints will rule the world in that same chapter. They didn't understand the importance of marriage and sex in chapter 7. But here, there's a clear difference. Here, their understanding is impeccable. As a matter of fact, their understanding of Jesus and the very things that they would affirm by Paul's own words are probably better than the vast majority of churches that you'd find today. But they have a problem. It's not in their thinking, it's not in their doctrine, but it's in how they manage that doctrine and so Paul highlights several things for them in this passage. And the first thing that we find is that he highlights that there is a necessary knowledge that all must have. There's a necessary knowledge. He begins by, we think, quoting either a, a motto that the Corinthians had or something that came in a letter that was sent to him, and he says, we all possess knowledge. Now, it's quite clear Paul doesn't fully necessarily approve of that, given what we're going to read in verse 7, but they, they have knowledge. But after he affirms this, he come back, comes back immediately and he says, 
But you need to have a warning about that because knowledge simply puffs up. This puff up term is a term that he has used already. The pride of the Corinthians has caused factions and divisions within their congregation. It is because they've been puffed up. They think better of themselves than of other people that has caused these issues. And here is another instance of this knowledge puffing them up. Knowledge is a great catalyst for people to be raised up in pride. A friend and I were were talking about that just this week. It wasn't you know, 15, 20 years ago in, in SBC circles that the, the greatest arguments that were going on, the largest and most difficult things that were going on was how Southern Baptists who happened to be Arminian would also get along with Southern Baptists who happened to be Calvinist. And, and those are not always the best terms to use, but to oversimplify, this is basically what that argument came down to. Calvinists at their core see the sovereignty of God as the lens by which we are to view almost everything in Scripture. Arminians, on the other hand, see man's free will as the lens by which you primarily see things. Now, both of those are oversimplifications, but that's kind of what it comes down to. Both are going to affirm both man's free will, and both will affirm God's sovereignty, but they do so in distinct ways. Now, what we noticed is that Calvinists ought to be the most humble people in the world— Because what they claim is that everything that they have, everything that they've been given, whether it is the gospel, whether it is salvation, whether it's sanctification, whether it's knowledge of all of the doctrines that have been given to them, are all given to them by God. It isn't because they're smarter. It isn't because they're more noble. This is their own declaration. And we both notice that, however, if you put them in a room with an Arminian, They will easily get frustrated because the Arminians do not read the word of God like they do. They do not see the things that they do. They do not believe the way that they do. And they think that it's due to bad reading skills. They think it's due to a hardness of heart. They think it's due to a number of different things that fall back not on the sovereignty of God, but on man's free will. You have never met a more puffed up person than a Calvinist who loves theology and who doesn't know what to do with it and especially young ones who haven't gone through enough humbling to know how to handle it. Knowledge has this wonderful way of puffing people up, of making them think they know something when they don't. Love does the opposite. Paul says, but love builds up. Again, this is an analogy or a metaphor that Paul's used before. He talks back in chapter 3 about building one another up. Gold, silver, and precious stones by which we build one another up. We're not to build ourselves up. We are to build one another up. And knowledge, it seems, here, for Paul, takes a back seat to love. Verse 2 is somewhat vague. It's hard to tell exactly what Paul means by this. I don't think he means this rigorously, that if you imagine that you know something— You do not yet know as you ought to know. Paul's going to confirm that the things that they do know are good, and I think that Paul would confirm that we have to know something. It seems as though this is meant to be vague to cover a number of things, but I think the main idea is you're never going to know all the way. But also, this sort of taking down knowledge a peg. Knowledge is not the most important thing. It's always going to play second fiddle to love. It's always going to play second fiddle to things that are more important. Now, it's true, knowledge and truth matter, right? If the second fiddle or the second violin plays horribly, it will ruin the entire chorus. It will ruin everything that's happening in that symphony and orchestra. But it's not the first. 
Paul finishes by saying this very odd thing. If anyone loves God, we, we know that he's talking about our knowledge. We would expect him to say, if anyone loves God, then he knows God. He knows God by the Spirit. He knows the deep things of the God because the Spirit reveals them to him. But he doesn't say that. He twists it. and He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This twist is important. This particular way of constructing things, Paul uses quite often. In Romans, he talks about God foreseeing us and foreknowing us, that before the foundation of the world, God had chosen those whom he would call to himself. He knew you. Galatians 4.9 uses almost the same sort of construction. There, Paul writes, Now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. It's not so much that you know God that's important. What's much more important is that God knows you. If you're seeking for knowledge, that is the necessary knowledge that has to happen in your life. Not that you know. Not that you understand. Not that you rightly can construct all the prepositions that you need to construct and propositions that you need to put together in order to talk rightly about the Lord. The most important thing is that the Lord knows you. We might think that that's a really strange consideration for Paul to fall back on. After all, God knows all things. He knows every single person. He was the one who formed them in the womb. He was the one who brought them to life. He knows them. He knows everything that they have done, everything that they will do, everything that they could have done had they acted differently, and how all of the impacts of that would have wafted throughout the history of the world. One day, many, many years ago, it must have been 15 years ago now, and I was uh, pastoring in Oak Ridge. I was sitting in a Panera, and I heard some engineers from Oak Ridge National Laboratory, retired guys, were talking, and um, I, I piped up and got in a conversation with them. And one of these gentlemen, as we turned the conversation to the Lord by his own kindness, um, he brought a particular hesitation to the faith that I don't think I had ever heard somebody verbalize before. And he said, listen, I, the thing that catches me whenever I hear somebody talk about the Lord, is I realize back, back, back when God was just the God over Israel, before Christianity sort of exploded over the globe, it's so provincial. It's so small and narrow. There were people in every other corner of the world that God didn't seem to care about. He only cared about these individual people, and it seems so small and so narrow and so limited. I just... I have a hard time thinking that that is the God of the whole world. It's an interesting little reason not to believe. And listen, he's not wrong. Amos 3 says this, As God speaks to his people, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God says, look, to Asia and, and look to Africa and look to Europe and look to North America and South America. If you even knew that those existed, look all over the place. And if you were to take stock of all those people, it would seem as though you are the only people I know because I've taken an interest in you, because I've worked through you, because I've revealed myself to you, because I have let you know me. It's like I only know of you. That's precisely what Paul is saying. 
When God calls you to himself, it's like he only knows you. The world is almost, as it were, being worked around you. Everything that happens to you happens for your good. God is orchestrating the world around you. He is working all things out for the good of those who love him and know him. God knows you. This is the only knowledge that is truly necessary. Yes, you you do need to confess, and we'll get to that. And it needs to be a good confession. But to have God know you, to love you, to focus on you, to give you the glory of the gospel and the goodness of his son, that is the knowledge that matters most. And all other knowledge will pale in comparison to that. Now, given what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter, we can sense that Paul's not talking about the issue at hand. He, he seems to be starting with this, and you've got to think, once you know that we're moving toward meat, right? Like, I don't understand what this has to do with bacon offered to Aphrodite, so it seems strange. But Paul's going to bring it back together, okay? So you'll see it in the end. The second thing that Paul mentions is not only that, that there is a necessary knowledge, but secondly, the Corinthians have a commendable confession. Their confession is right and good and true, And in verses 4 through 6, he outlines what that is. If God knows us, and that means, I think as Paul implies, that we love God, it also means that we must know God in some sense. This is the basis of God's actions. He knows us so that he might show us and get us to see who he is. The phrase and the phrases that are close to it, that they shall know that I am the Lord, after all, to go back to just the book of Ezekiel, happen over 73 times. And God says that he will act so that people would know who he is. We are to know who God is. How can we honestly love God if we don't know who he is? It sounds like a Hallmark movie, right? Like you've got a woman who's married to a man and one of them has this deep, dark secret, a second life that they're living, and once it's found out, the other spouse looks at them and says, I don't know who you are. If I don't know who you are, how can I truly love you? The person I thought I loved doesn't exist, and that's exactly what we would say in Christianity. If you claim to love God, you have to know who the God is that you love. Otherwise, you're just loving some sort of figment of your imagination. God has revealed who he is. This is why the early church spent so much time telling us who God is. And so Paul agrees with the generalities and in the particulars of this confession. He says, an idol, an idol doesn't have any real existence. You walk into a temple, there's going to be a big statue there, or a small statue, or a bunch of smaller statues, whatever the case might be, made of stone, overlaid with gold, whatever the case might be. He says, that is just a piece of stone. You know it, and I know it. We know that that's not what those worshipers claim it to be. And they don't mean by that that they don't believe that there's evil in the world, that there are demons in the world, that that Satan rules over the world. We know that Paul believes that. We know that they likely believe that. But they also know that this little figure is not the embodiment or something that is embodied by that demon. This little figurine has no control or influence over them in the world. Therefore, there is no God but one. God is singular, all alone, and by himself. As Isaiah would say time and time again, especially towards the end of his prophecy, who is like our God? Who would you compare our God to? And the answer is no one. There is nothing in this world that is like our God. 
Verse 6 begins this sort of Christian confession. This confession, no matter how many gods people might say there are, no matter how many lords they might pray to, this confession is our controlling confession. And it, it comes likely from some sort of poem or hymn that Christians sang. It's got a rhythm to it, and, and there's a pattern to it. It seems as though it's not of Paul's original making, but something that he was putting before the Corinthians, much like you get in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, this great Christian confession of the deity of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done in the world, that confession itself seems to be something that Christians had long since upheld. That seems to be exactly what's going on here as well. He says, there is one God who is the Father. All things come from him. He didn't use a separate pile of stuff to make everything else, but it came from him. Through his word, through his power, by his goodwill, he made all things to come into existence. They not only come from him, but they are then for him. There's a, there's a sense in, in, in these verses of a to and fro kind of thing. Out goes creation from God so that it might reflect back to him his power and his mercy and his glory. From him and for him. It is then said that there is also one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, the same kind of construction is being used here. The Greek cuts it off so that it sounds more formal there, but we need to finish it off. And the way that the ESV finishes it off is that it's through him we exist, but, but it really just says through him. I think that the better way to finish it than by saying we exist because it's already got done saying through whom are all things. He's already been stated as the creator of all things. I think that second line is supposed to mean that we also then from him, for him, we are made through him and it's through him that we glorify God. It's through him that we come back to do the things that God has created us for. Either way. The Son has always been the means of all of the Father's work. The Father creates when we come to existence through the Son. The Father seeks out his glory through us, and it is by the work of the Son that we give the Father glory. Now, many of you who have come across this sort of Trinitarian thing, and here it's, a, it's really just talking about the Father and the Son, but nevertheless, you might run into people who say, that's great that you guys say that and all, but it's got to be wrong. And it's got to be wrong for a couple of reasons. We can even see it here. That no matter what the title Lord might mean, the title Lord doesn't mean God. And therefore, what Paul upholds here is that there's only one God. So whatever you want to make of Jesus, it's clearly not that he's God. The Bible never, they would say, calls Jesus God. Now that's that's a bit of a fib, but it holds true for like 99% of the New Testament. Jesus is not called straightforwardly God. He's almost always called Lord. Why does he never say our God, Jesus Christ? If Jesus is God, why does he always call him Lord? Well, there is actually a good reason. At the end of services, there's a lot of stuff going on. Usually I've got to run around, pick up the boys or deal with them or fix some other problem or something like that. And if somebody wanted to get my attention they could yell out, pastor. Now, we've got two pastors, but generally I would turn around regardless and I would think that you're speaking to me. You could also yell out, Doug. And while we also have two Dougs, I would assume that you're probably trying to speak to me and I would turn around anyway. You could say, Pastor Doug. You could say a whole bunch of things that I would likely not respond to, but those are the two things that I would likely respond to the most. Now, the deal is, pastor is not my name. 
Pastor is the title that I hold. Doug is my name. In the same way, no matter which one you use, you're referring to the same entity. If you call me pastor, I know you're talking to me. If you call me Doug, I know you're talking to me. Those two words denote the same person for me. Please understand that that's important when you come to understand how Paul is using God and Lord. God is a title. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim, and it means God, but it, it kind of can be reduced to like spiritual beings. And, and that same word Elohim is not just used for the God of the Israelites, it's used for the gods of Egypt. It's the exact same words. He is God, they are gods. And it doesn't ever treat the gods of Egypt as though they're not real. He says they're gods. It means something like spiritual beings. But what the Hebrew is quite clear about is the God of the Israelites is God in a way that all those other gods are clearly not. He might be non-material. He might be spiritual, but he is far and above and greater than all of them. This is why they call him the God of gods and the Lord of lords. There are gods, and then there is our God, and no one compares to him. Now, this God happens to have a particular name. It's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. The Jews didn't like saying that, though, out of fear that they would go against the third commandment. And so whenever they would read scripture and they came upon his name, they would say the name for Lord. Instead, they would use the word Adonai. And so for English-speaking folks through a variety of different things, our translations in the Old Testament took out the name of the Lord and put in the name Lord, literally L-O-R-D, capital. So when the word of the Lord becomes associated with the person of God, God and Yahweh are referring to the same person. Or God and Yahweh, we would say a little bit, but are referring to the same being. And so when Paul stands up and he says, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, you shouldn't think that Lord is some sort of lesser title. Lord is no less than the very name of God in the Old Testament. He is the one by whom all of Israel has been delivered. He is the one who has made the world and created it with his own power in his hand. He is the one who makes the promises to the patriarchs, who leads the people away from Pharaoh, who provides for them safety in the desert, who provides for them a land flowing with milk and honey, who gives them kingdoms and temples and sacrifices and laws. He is no less than Jesus. This is our confession. Their confession is right and good and true. We would do well to learn it and to lean upon it. And while they've got this commendable confession, they also then have pathetic practice. The third thing Paul points out is they have absolutely pathetic practice. These Corinthians are clearly the recipients of God's love. They know well the God that they confess, and nevertheless, they do not know how to handle themselves in light of those things. It's worth saying two things right from the start. I understand that this particular passage is dealing with the meat issue and dealing with conscience. We're not going to deal with that today. Paul's not done dealing with that. We're going to come round back to it in chapter 10, and we're going to kind of deal with the intricacies of conscience and you know, whether you can go down to Arby's and have a roast beef sandwich after this when we're all done. Um, you, you can do that, but we're not going to deal with it necessarily today. The second thing is, and this is quite important, Paul has absolutely no notes when it comes to their theology. He doesn't correct them. 
He doesn't say, listen, your understanding of God is sour here, or your understanding of, of how idols work and how their temples work is wrong here. Let me correct you. No, his problem is absolutely and completely with what they do with that knowledge. It's about practice. Immediately in verse 7, Paul says, not all have this knowledge. It seems like it's a contradiction from verse 1, but I think it's pretty explainable. I, I do not think that it means that some don't really think that there is only one God or that these idols actually somehow have power that rivals God or that they are equal with God somehow and God is just a provincial God that they have brought in line. It's hard for me to fathom that Paul could think that people were true believers in the one true and living God if they didn't believe that he was the one true and living God. I think that they have learned it well. I think that it's been catechized into them. The point isn't that this isn't their confession. I think that it is their confession, but I think that given where they've come from, how they've been raised, where they've been taught, they struggle with it. If you ask them, is there one God? They're going to say yes. You put them in a temple. You tell them that you can eat this meat offered to an idol. Are they going to think that they are worshiping that idol? They might. My kids, like me before them and like the vast majority of you, have at times struggled with the dark. They struggle with fearing the dark. And I do what every dad ever does when it comes to the problems of being afraid of the dark. We turn on the lights, we say, hey, you woke me up for the 13th time, listen, ain't nothing here, okay? There's nothing here, nothing's going to be here, I don't know how else to explain it to you, that's all I've got. Don't wake me up again. Now, some of you have handled that better than I did, but nevertheless, the idea is basically the same. You, you, you show them, there's nothing to fear, you, you assure them, mom and I are, are right around the corner, we will protect you, we'll be there for you, but in the end, you realize that it's not just that they think that there's something there. The problem isn't rational. The problem isn't that they're, they're thinking that there actually is something in the corner. The problem is emotional. The problem is that they're afraid. The problem isn't that they're thinking wrong. The problem isn't that they think that there are things that only work in the dark. They, they could very well know that. The problem's on a whole other level. The Corinthians, at least some of them, rationally know that these are just statues. But when they see their friends eating meat in the temple, and they're tempted then to take part in that, when they take part in it, they think that they're offering sacrifices to gods. They're pulled in to think that these statues, these idols, have some hold over their life. By fear, they're drawn into them, maybe hedging their bets a little bit, maybe thinking that things have gone awry because I haven't been doing this, or whatever the case might be. And it's important to note, they are being sucked into idolatry. Paul knows that there are people who are now going down to eat meat in the temples who are being sucked into idolatry. And note very, very well whom Paul chastises. You have people engaging who have right theology, right doctrine, right thoughts about God. And you have people who have wrong thoughts about God, kind of a fuzzy theology, who are engaging in idolatry. And Paul takes the good theology people to task. He looks at them and he says, do you know what you're doing? He, he says, you're strong. That's great. You're strong. But you are the problem. 
It's not the people who are struggling with idolatry that are the problem. It's not the people who are struggling with walking in light of their confession that are the problem. You're the problem, strong people. You who think you know things, you don't know it well enough. He blasts them for their haughty attitude and their unwillingness to do what needs to be done to help those who they rightfully know are weaker than they are. And let's be clear what the issue is. The issue is not that the weak here don't like what the strong are doing. This isn't a matter of opinion. It's not that they're looking at the strong and saying, that seems to me to be a sin. I think that what you're doing is a sin. That's not what this issue is about. Paul's not saying that you have to bend yourself to everyone else's opinion. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is they are then engaging in the same sort of behavior. And engaging in that behavior, it's about action. They are committing idolatry and they are being destroyed. It's not just a minor sin. He's saying you are ruining their faith. You're taking one who needs to be nurtured and built up, who needs to be helped and aided, and you are running them down. You are burying them because you think that you've got a right to eat meat. Putting yourself in place of the strong, I, you might think this is a difficult spot after all. How is that fair? There's no reason why we can't eat this. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to go and, and into the temple where this isn't a god. It, it's a statue. It's just a statue. It's just meat. Meat doesn't commend us to God. It doesn't take us away from God. It's, it's a meaningless thing. So why are we being laid out because other people don't have their theology down right? It's their problem, not ours. And right there, Paul would say, that's the problem. You think it's their problem, not yours. If it's their problem, it's yours. He draws us immediately back to Christ. Christ died for this brother or sister. He laid down his life to purchase them. His blood was shed for them. His life was given for them just as it was for yours. Just as it was for all who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. He gave all. He spent the very gift of life that he had to buy them back. So how dare you despise that gift by saying that it wasn't strong enough or good enough or powerful enough? There is one knowledge that surpasses all others that God knows them. He cares about them. He loves them. He has purchased them. Do not despise the good work of Christ just because you think your brother or your sister is weak or feeble. Paul would say, yeah, you possibly have a right to eat that meat. Christ has indeed cleared that path for you. But that does not give you the right to trump love that you are to have for them. That is nothing short of sins, friends. Your rights, any sort of Christian liberty you might think you have in any sort of area at all, always ends with the sin either of you or of somebody else. That is where you find the finality of your rights. The Corinthians hadn't learned that yet. Christ gave up his life for this person. 
are you not willing to give up stake for them? Paul goes one step further. He says, if, if it makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. But that's not even the issue here. The issue is not just not eating meat. It's really straightforwardly not eating meat in the temple. They're not willing to do that. They're complaining to Paul about these weaker brothers and sisters complaining to them. Paul's just not going to have it. What might you be unwilling to give up for your brothers and sisters? To build them up, to strengthen them. What kind of time, what kind of energy, what kind of priorities are you willing to cast out that you might help build them up? As we talked about, we have meetings here where we, we seek to get to know one another, to build them up. We, we've got community groups. We've got prayer meeting. We've got Sunday school. These things are not just here so that we can program you more. They're not just meant to be times where we teach. They're meant to be times when you help build one another up. You grow in love and in fellowship so that you can know one another better, to love one another better. Don't be unwilling to give up stake for the good of your brothers and sisters. Don't be unwilling to give up of your time, of your energy, of other priorities that you think you should have to be able to spend time with brothers and sisters and build them up in the Lord. This language of God's knowledge of us in salvation, that God knows us, is clearly depicted by Jesus in an incredibly difficult passage back in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It says, I... I never knew you. Many of them had great works. They recognized Jesus as Lord, but the simple truth was this. They refused to do the will of the Father. Friends, there are a number of great things that you can do. You can give of your time to the poor. You can proclaim the name of Jesus from the rooftops. You can fight evil in your free time. But if you do not have love for your brothers or sisters, if you do not care for them more than your rights and your privileges, more than the passing niceties of this world, you have not even begun to love your neighbor as yourself. You have not done the will of God. And more than that, if your rights and privileges lead others towards sin, you ought to be very careful to listen to the words of our Lord from Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones, you might want to read that, one of these weak ones, who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is incredibly difficult language to hear. The Lord does not take any of his people being led into sin lightly. He said, if you were about to do that, it's better for you just to die than it is to engage in that sin, to lead others away from me. Truth without love is no less a sin than hate and animosity and idolatry. 
and especially from leaders and preachers who are supposed to be shepherds, truth without love is wolf language. It's one who acts as though they deserve honor and praise, but they do not. Love one another. Care for each other as you would even for yourself. In doing so, you fulfill the will of your Father in heaven, and you demonstrate that God not only knows you, but you know the God whom you serve. Let us pray. Father, these things can easily be far above us on our own. With our selfish hearts and desires, we can never live this way. May your spirit dwell richly in us, convicting us and moving us so we might love one another as you have loved us. May we do this for the good of our brothers and sisters and to uphold the great name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is his name that we ask this in. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, come, behold the wondrous mystery.